0: Good morning, church. Morning. If you're joining us online, we're so excited you're doing so. Hopefully you've had a great week. How's everybody doing this morning? Are we tired? Are we excited? Are we ready? Are we kind of mundane? Where are we at? Yes to all. Okay, very good. Thank you, Randy. Appreciate that. Uh, How are we doing on reading Psalm 19? Raise your hand if you read it at least once. Let's just go once. There's a huge net. We're trying to read Psalm 19 every single day for six weeks. It's only 14 verses. Uh, no legalism, so people are traveling, things get busy during the day, you know, whatever. You go, oh, I haven't read for like eight days. Great, jump right in. Uh, I'd also want to encourage you, grab a different version each time as well. So read it in the new RSV, read it in the NIV, read it in the New Living Translation. Just jump around, get a bunch of different uh, wordings. Alicia led us this morning in prayer, to which you're all invited to, every Every, more, every Sunday morning we meet here in this room at 9.15 for prayer. And she ran out of the message, uh, which was just awesome the way it's worded in the message. Very, very rich uh, and engaging. So I want to invite you to that. All of that centers around the fact that we started this new series several weeks ago called The Word of God. And the reason that we're tackling this... Uh, series is because often we will hear, especially in Christian circles, churchy circles, we'll hear words like the inspired Word of God or the infallibility of Scripture or the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority, the pricelessness, and we go, okay, well, I'm supposed to agree with that, and that's supposed to, I guess, somehow excite me, but why? And so what we've decided is go, let's just answer some of those. Let's dig into why is the Word of God so incredibly special. What sets it apart? Why should you read it? What, we're told to read the Bible, and, and we grow up as kids, especially if you grow up in the church, going, you should read your Bible. But why? Why is that so? And so we're unpacking all of these different topics to, A, try and get us a little bit more understanding on the Word of God. But then we said on the very first week, Truth be told, our goal is that you want to read your Bible more at the end of this series than you did at the beginning of the series. And so cards on the table, that's what our goal is. So we have covered the inspiration, the infallibility, the inerrancy. And last week was the what in regards to infallibility and errancy. We really unpacked that in in great depth. So if you missed last week... Uh, please grab some time this week, go back. That'll give you the foundation of what we're gonna talk about today. And today what we're gonna talk about is the does it matter question. That's where we ended last week on all of these different things that we presented, and then we asked the question, does it even matter? Or is is the infallibility and inerrancy and inspired, or is that just like high-level churchy words? Is that something that we just need to nod our head to? Or does it matter when you open your scriptures and interact with the God of all creation? And I would suggest to you, it matters fundamentally, not just slightly of importance, but it's the fundamental reason why you should open your Bible. This will transfer, or or I should say rather, this will give you a new reason on why to read, not because I'm supposed to, but because I want to. So God is without error. We talked about that last week. In fact, God is not even capable of error because he would cease to be God if he were capable of error and to possess those attributes. Why? Because he would be missing the perfectness of what God needs to be. And so not only is God himself not capable of error and without, so is his word. So if you would join me, if you would please stand, we're going to read uh, Psalm 19 starting at verse 7. Again, uh, if you come every week or if you read this every day, you're, you're going to say Psalm 19 is one of the most known passages in your own heart at the end of this. So listen to the words of the Lord. I'm reading out, out of the New Living Translation. Uh, those of you at home, those of you in the room, you might have a different version and that's wonderful. Here's what it says starting in verse 7. The instructions of the Lord are what? They are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are what? They're right, bringing joy to the heart. Notice they're right, but they do something. That's just amazing. The commands of the Lord are clear, and again, they do something. They give insight for the living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair, They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. I've never done that. I'm assuming that's a wonderful thing. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all of the sins lurking in my heart? Boy, there's a, a sermon series right there. Cleanse me from what? These hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. Verse 14, wonderful. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That is the word of the Lord for us this morning. You can have a seat. Uh, There's just so much in this one little chapter. Here's my hope and ambition for you as you read this every day, that something hits you heavy that it didn't yesterday. That maybe today it's the fact that you have hidden faults that you're not aware of. That you have hidden sin that Jesus died for, you may never be aware of. And he still died for that. You say, well, how can I be guilty of something I'm not even privy to? Jesus died for that. Or you might camp out on the first two verses, what the heavens declare in the morning and and what God does at the night, and it just hits you in a very, very heavy way. My hope is that as you dive into this 14-verse chapter, is that it comes alive for you. Because everywhere we look, we see that not only is God active, he's doing something, but his words do something. If we look at the book of John, it says, you will know the truth, and the truth what? Active. The truth, the words that are described in the scriptures, and the one who is truth will be active for you. The activeness of the word of God will set you free. And again, I posed this question last week, and it's still relevant today. Name another book that is active in your life. Name another book that's doing something for your soul. D- name another book that's changing your mindset, that, that's making you more holy, that, that's bringing kindness and gentleness and understanding. Name another book that is active in changing your worldview, not academic knowledge and changing the way you think, literally changing who you are. There's no other book. Why? Because the Bible is the only book that's active and breathing and working right now in your heart. Why, because you're holding in your lap right now or in your phone, you're holding the Word of God. You're holding the very words of the God who gives and takes life away. You're holding the very words that, that breathes into existence a star, that puts a petal on a flower, that puts every drop into the ocean, that knows every blade of grass, that knows every hair on your head, you're holding the words of that one. That's awe. That's awesome. (laughs) That's awe-inspiring. And that's what we're doing. So the Bible is alive. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, it'll be on the screen for you. Uh, In the ESV, it says this, for the word of God is living and it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Holy moly. That's the word of God. The word of God is so active, it splits you. This is my prayer every single Sunday as as we walk the chairs, as I pray for you all week long. My prayer is that any words that come from me, any words that, that I have put together would fall to the ground and die, that they would have no life whatsoever. But my prayer in addition to that is that the word of God, those things that come from heaven would literally pierce your hearts and bring life, because that's what the Word of God says it does. So we're asking the question is, all of that truth, everything that's contained in this beautiful family Bible, this is a Rowan Bible, uh, been passed down for several generations there, does the words that's contained in this book, does the truth that there's no error, and not even the capability of error, does that matter for you? I want to get really, really personal with this. Does it matter for you when you open up your Bible and you go spend some time with the Lord? Does that matter? Is the debate whether the Bible can be uh, trusted merely a, a theological, trivial objection, which we will do often in academic circles? And the answer absolutely is not. It is not in any way what one theologian referred to as a minor quibble. It's a very fun word. We don't use that often enough. The question of ultimate authority is of tremendous importance for the Christian, but not just for the Christian, for the church. Because the church will crumble if we question this. So number one, I'm gonna give you five points. We're gonna zip through these pretty quickly. So if you're a note taker, uh, or you like to just take pictures and refer to it later, or you like to jot down in your Bible, this is gonna give you some very practical reasons why. And, And this is also important. It's not just for you. If you have a conversation with a friend or family member co or neighbor of, of why does the Bible matter if, if you, we believe it's uh, without failure and incapable? Why does that even matter? This is going to help you answer some of those uh, questions in conversation. So number one, to begin with, the inerrancy solidifies our confidence in the truth of the gospel. I'm going to give you some action words here. Each one is going to be a verb here. So it solidifies, it, it makes it perfectly solid, our confidence in the truth of the gospel. Why? Because if the scripture is unreliable, can we really offer the world a reliable gospel? If there's any wiggle room for the gospel to be in air or cloudy or, or disagreeing with itself, can we really offer the, the world anything that is solidified? And the answer would be no, with that type of reasoning. So how can we be sure of the truth on any issue if we're suspicious for the Bible in anything? In other words, if we, if we find something and we go, ooh, there's an error, or the Bible's wrong on this, then how can we possibly look to it as our guiding force as Christ followers? Does that make sense to you all? This is important for us. So think of it this way. A pilot, uh, and I, any of you don't like to fly? Thank you, Alan, Mark, a few of you. I don't, I don't really enjoy flying. I'm not as bad as my bride, Sandy, who bruises whoever she's sitting by um, as she is flying. But I don't really enjoy flying. I, I think of what could go wrong. And, and I understand the statistics, so please don't come up to me and say, well, statistically speaking, you're safer in the air. I know all that. It's just in my own head. But a pilot will ground itself even to the slightest suspicion that something's wrong. It's not like a pilot says, well, no, that doesn't look too good, but eh, we're good. That doesn't look very good, but eh, what's the worst that can happen? Oh, the, the wings are kind of topsy-turvy, but we should be fine. No, even in the slightest problem, a pilot will ground the plane. Why? Because the risk is too big. So it will, the pilot will act on it, even in the most minor fault, because he's aware that just one fault could destroy the entire flight. And it's the same with Scripture. If the history contained in the Bible is even slightly wrong, how can we be sure that the doctrine or the moral teaching is correct? In the church today, and it's not really limited today, to be sure, but it's very uh, fashionable to look for problems in Scripture from Christ-following individuals. And I would say, have at it. The problem is if you think you have found an error, that should crumble your faith to the ground. You with me? It's important to think about that because it's very easy just to focus on, ooh, I found something that's not right. Play that story out long-term in regards to your faith. Why is this important to us? Because the heart of the Christian message is history. So if we question history, if we find errors in history, that gets to the very heart of the Christian faith. And you say, well, hold on a second. I thought Jesus was at the heart of our faith. Yes. But let's think holistically here. The incarnation, God becoming a man, was demonstrated by the virgin birth of Christ. That is a historical event that took place. If we question history, then we question our faith. Redemption, the price paid by our rebellion on the cross, was obtained by the death of Jesus Christ on that wood cross. That is a historical fact that happened. Reconciliation, the privilege of the sinner becoming a friend of God, was gained through the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. If these events that are recorded in Scripture, these historical events that are also uh, supplemented by other historical documents, that they actually happen, if these events are not true, then how do we know the theology behind them is true? This is why it matters to you that there are no errors in Scripture. This is why it matters that there's not even the capability of error in Scripture. So that's one reason it does matter when discussing the infallibility and inerrancy. Number two, inerrancy governs. Our faith in the value of Christ. It governs it. Government is an interesting thing. It's uh, and, and we're a little cloudy with it in today's times, but that's okay. The idea of government is to guide, is to protect, is, is to point you in the right direction and, and to keep everything together. So when we understand the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture, that governs our faith in the value of of Christ. And you say, well, explain what the value of Christ means. It's interesting. Uh, I think Alex is gonna talk on the pricelessness of, of the scriptures coming up, so I don't wanna go too deep into this. But if you think about it in today's time, everything has a price tag. And so when we think about, well, how valuable is Christ? That's an important question for each of us to answer. How valuable is your house to you? How valuable are your friendships to you? The person sitting next to you, how valuable are they to you? As you all look to each other. You're like, eh, 150 bucks, I don't know, give or take 50. Um, the idea of a value is an interesting thing, but as we know the scriptures, if we know this was, is without error, the value of who it speaks of goes up. If we think for a moment that there's wiggle room in what it says, the value of who it talks about goes down. There's an economy in our understanding of Scripture. This is important because we cannot have a reliable Savior without a reliable Scripture. You cannot have one without the other. If, as many suggest, the stories in the Gospels are not historically true and the words recorded of Christ are only occasionally his, then how do we know what we can trust about Christ? How do we know if he really turned water into wine? How do we know if he really did heal somebody? How do we know if he really did feed 5,000 people? How do we know if he really did touch the eyes of the blind and allow them to see? How, how do we know if he, if he actually raised someone who was paralyzed and allowed them to walk again? How do we really know what to believe and what not to believe? What happened and what didn't happen? It's, it's again, very, very frequent. We find in churches and in individual Christian circles, people saying, well, the, these are analogies. You know? These things really didn't happen. It's just more to give us an idea. That, those are slippery grounds us to begin to tiptoe on. And if we do so, then we find ourselves relying on the conflicting interpretation of a host of critical scholars that really study this stuff before we know what Christ was like or not like. And I want to suggest to you this morning, that's not what God had in mind. When Jesus walked this earth, when he lived his life, it it was not under the intention that someday scholars are going to nitpick this thing to death, and they'll find out what really happened and what didn't happen. Those are dangerous waters for us to weed into. If the gospel stories are merely the result of wishful thinking of the church, That is another argument that is handed down, that that it's just stories upon stories upon stories that have been given from generation to generation to generation. If it's really this wishful thinking of the church in the second and third centuries or, or even personal views of the gospel writers, remember we talked about that with the inspiration of scripture in week one, then our faith no longer rests upon Jesus but upon man and woman. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to rest my faith on me. I don't want to rest my faith on you. I don't want to rest my faith on an author or a scholar or a theologian or a pastor. I want to rest my faith on something I know is true and it can withstand the test of the storms of life that hit it. Amen? That's what we're working on. That's that's where our focus should be. Why? Because who would trust an unreliable Savior? That is only partially true, only partially correct. Most of what it says actually happened. Some of it didn't. Oh, which parts didn't? Well, I don't know. Some of it didn't. It just creates this question of do I really value and do I trust this thing that I'm putting my faith into? But he is reliable. Why? Because the Bible says so. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and, and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That is so cool. You ever play the telephone game? You know, you, you, I tell something to Randy and Randy turns around and tells it to Linda and Linda turns to her left and tells it to another Linda and they turn around and, and it just continues and, and, and maybe it's a complex story or whatever and it, by, the, by the time it, it gets back to Cheryl in the back, you know, she's talking about an elephant that went to, you know, a museum and somehow had uh, some pie. And Randy's story started with, I met in a library Um, where I could look at the sky. Like, we just lose it, right? Second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, hand. Well, apply that to centuries. What century are we in? Yeah, very good. Uh, Some of you are like, I have no idea. Um, That's your problem. if we do that, if, if we think about that, if we think that scripture wasn't just handed down, handed down, handed down. These are eyewitnesses. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. We did not listen to folk tales handed down of I once caught a fish this big. We did not get stories that talk about these things that may have happened, and I don't know if they really did, but Grandpa tells the story, and this is how he says it. You've experienced some of those. Mark Arnett is gonna be an incredible old man someday because he's got stories beyond stories beyond stories. He'll just be the, the perfect old geezer at the men's ministry. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about actual eyewitnesses of what? his majesty. Not some dude. Not some historically true guy who who did live. And, And just so you know, it's been historically proven in secular worlds that Jesus did exist. So if you find someone that wants to fight you on that, they're just not educated even in the secular world. Jesus did exist, but he's not referred to as Jesus. He's referred to as we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's a big deal. And that's another reason why it matters when discussing infallibility and inerrancy. So let's continue. Number three, inerrancy guides our response to the conclusions of science. I would maybe throw history in there as well. But for this morning, let's just focus on science. If we believe the Bible contains errors or at best, let's go at best, slight uh, discrepancies, then we will be quick to accept scientific theories that eloquently appear to prove the Bible wrong. Does that make sense? Let 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 me say that again. If we believe that the Bible contains errors, even slight discrepancies in what it says, then we will be quick to accept scientific theories that very eloquently, let's give credit where credit's due, very, very eloquently describe why and how the Bible is wrong. In other words, we will allow the conclusions of science to dictate the accuracy of the Word of God. Happens all the time, happens every day. Uh, certainly happens on the college campus today. And, and let's be fair, college campuses are not evil. They're not. They, they give a ton of information. They push the individual with faith or without faith to critically think. They expose them to different things. It's a great environment. But often what happens is science trumps the word of God. Why? Because it makes What? It makes sense; it can be eloquently described to us, but let so let me be clear I, I believe and I follow science, okay Are we okay with that? I love Jesus, I believe the Word of God, but I do follow and I, and I enjoy science. my My twins are are like science nerds. Uh, and I say that kindly because every day I'm learning something from them and I really don't even understand a lot of the words that they use to explain it to me. But they're very, 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 very smart. How did they learn that? If, you, if I were to bring them up here and you go, hey, Luke, how do you learn that? They will go, YouTube. YouTube, not a teacher, <laughs> certainly not me, not a book. They will say, YouTube. And then they'll use that as a reason why they should receive more time on electronics. Um, because we're actually learning and, and they'll twist it. Are you with me, Karen? Like, man, our kids, they're not dumb in their deception. It's like they have a PhD in deception and they have like a level kindergarten in life, right? Um, but they're not altogether wrong. I believe science, I follow science and I, and I love how the world works and how science does enlighten our understanding and, and I love it even better when the word of God uh, has said things forever and science is just now catching up. And they go, Oh my gosh, it's this. And we go, Yep, we've already known that forever. The Bible says that. That's happening every single day. But as a follower of Jesus, it's important to hold the conviction that science follows Scripture, not the other way around. Science doesn't dictate our understanding of Scripture, the Scriptures dictate our understanding of science. Every discovery, everything that we find out, we should hold up the scriptures and allow this to be the backdrop of how we interpret new things. Uh, I love NASA. Uh, I love the new telescopes that are, that are uh, being formed every single year. We can see farther and farther and farther into space. It is brilliant. And we think because we're finding new information in science that we are getting smarter that maybe we need to fill God in with what we found. Right? It's like Ethan going uh, to the refrigerator at home, and then he turns to Mark and Alicia, and he's like, oh my gosh, look, there's food in here. And Mark goes, who do you think put it there? It's not us. All right, maybe not Mark, Alicia. Man, I'm glad I caught that, that awkward wrong. And the Spirit of God corrected me. (laughs) Otherwise, I'd have to apologize next week. Alicia put the food there. Ethan discovered it, but he discovered what has already been known God knows the universe, He knows how your cells are put together, He knows how to work with cancer. He understands vision, He understands hearing. He knows, and and I, for quite frankly, hope that this is true. He knows if there are aliens out there. I would love to meet an alien. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know if even that's theologically okay. I'm just saying, Brian hopes to meet an alien, as long as it doesn't eat me. But you understand what I'm saying? God is such a big God to say that there could be something else out there. Sign me up. But that doesn't dictate my understanding then of that creation. The Bible does. Are you with me on understanding science? You see, when we doubt the inerrancy of Scripture, we have to invent new principles for understanding Scripture so we can have a convenience for understanding history into poetry and science and facts. And we turn those things sometimes into myths. Notice it's not the scheme of the enemy to make you evil. Do you know that? The enemy isn't sitting around this morning. He's not having a press conference with his team and going, okay, how do we get AJ and Mandy to be evil? We went and saw the movie Cruella. Any of you seen that yet? Yeah, you don't need to. Um, <laughs> we did. It, it was fun with the kids, but you know, this woman just turns evil. That, that is not the intention of, of the enemy to make you evil. In any way, but it is his intention to make you question, even ever so slight. Question the truth, question the hope, question uh, the life change, uh, to question the wisdom that's been handed down to you from your parents is to question and go, do they really know what they're talking about? The answer is all parents at some point do know what they're talking about. Kids don't think so. I didn't think so. You didn't think so. Your kids certainly don't think so. But every now and then, we do know what we're talking about. But, but the enemy wants you to just question that. And on this trajectory, this means people must ask how reliable a given passage is when they turn to it. Or when, they, uh, when will they be able to decide what to make of it? On the other hand, if we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, we will test by Scripture these, these uh, random theories that hit us every day, whether in general life or in the university, when they come to us in the name of science. We'll question them with the truth that we know to be known in Scripture. Make sense? So that's, that's solid theology. That's healthy as we look at science. Are we good so far? Okay, there's one. Uh, number four, uh, inerrancy dictates our attitude to the preaching of Scripture. This is super important. Whether you attend this church for the rest of your life or you go to another church or you get married and move away or you take a job somewhere else or you're a student and you, you find another church somewhere when you're going to school, inerrancy, our ability to understand there are no flaws in this that dictates our attitude to the preaching of Scripture. Why? Because the denial of biblical errancy always leads to a loss of confidence in the Scripture, both for the preacher and for the hearer. And when we are at a loss or, or we're stumbled on potential errors in Scripture, you will often hear the words of man or woman preaching instead of the Scriptures. The problem with that is we've discussed this. I don't give you any life. I, I can encourage you. I can support you. I can love you. I, I can pray for you. I, I, I can walk through life with you, but I can't give you life. Only the Scriptures and who you find in the Scriptures can do that because it was not the growth of education and science that emptied churches and that continues to empty churches. That's not why it happens, nor was it the result of war. People say, well, the church was thriving before the church started asking questions, or the church was thriving before World War I or World War II, and and they'll attribute it to that. It wasn't those things. Instead, it was the cold deadness of theological liberalism, relativism, and divine universal truth. That's what started killing the church. This idea that we can pick and choose, that it's almost like going to, what's that smorgasbord place? Um, you probably don't eat there, you shouldn't. Golden Corral. Sorry if you work at Golden Corral. Um, But you go to Golden Corral and you go, I'll take a little bit of this, I'll take a little bit of this, I'm not touching that. Take a little bit of this, a little bit of this and you go back to your plate and you eat that and then you go back four or five times and you repeat it. That's what killed the church. That's what's killing the church is you just grab little bits and pieces of what you deem to be truth and what you don't deem to be truth, you set aside and you don't engage in it. That's what happened Think of it this way. If the Bible's history is doubtful and and its words are open to dispute or venomous argument, then people will begin to lose confidence in its words. I say this slowly and carefully because I do want to choose my words wisely. We talk about those things and we build our confidence in things we know to be true. Those things that we're wishy washy on, those things that maybe we have an opinion, but we don't really know if it's true, we don't have a whole lot of confidence. Make sense? I'll use Ethan again. Ethan is our worship intern. Go ahead and stand up. Okay, sit down. That's Ethan. I just wanted you to know who Ethan is. For those of you online, just an incredibly handsome young man. Let's say, hypothetically speaking, Ethan gets a girlfriend someday. Hypothetically speaking. May or may not happen, let's assume it does. Ethan gets a girlfriend, and she kind of likes him, but kind of is annoyed by him. Again, this is theoretical, purely. If Ethan's reading those signals, he's not going to talk to you much about that girlfriend. He's not going to go around going, hey, I'm dating her, I'm dating her. Like, do you know who I'm dating? I'm dating that girl. Like, there's not going to be a whole lot of confidence. Why? Because she didn't have confidence in him. And so he questions it a little bit. It's like, I just don't know. Like, I don't know where I stand. Maybe I'm good, maybe I'm not. Now, let's, let's fast forward. He gets rid of her. He gets this godly woman that God has picked out for him. She is the one, and she adores him. Like, all of his quirks, she loves. The family is amazed. They're in shock that she just... Falls for him, and he's like, this is the most amazing thing in the world. Well, Ethan's gonna have confidence to go around telling you. You know who I'm dating? You know who I'm dating? You know who my fiance is? Look at my bride. Look at my bride. She, can you believe she loves me? Like, he is going to tell anyone he knows about that relationship. Why? Because he has confidence. You see, if you don't have confidence in your relationship with Jesus... You're not going to tell many people about him. Why? Because you kind of know what truth is. You kind of know he's for you. Uh, You've heard that he loves you. Brian says he's crazy about you. Uh, But I just, I don't know. You're not going to tell many people about Jesus. But if you are sure as the day is long, you will tell everyone about that relationship. You see the difference? Thanks for letting me pick on you, Ethan. Finally, inerrancy invites our belief in the trustworthy character of God. Our understanding that there's no failure in this and not even the capability of failure, it invites our belief in the trustworthy character of God. Notice I didn't say it demands it. Although the Bible and Jesus has every right to do so, God will not force your heart to do something it doesn't choose. The inerrancy invites our belief in the trustworthy character of God. It's an invitation to you today. And as we get ready to worship, as we get ready to go about our day, you are invited to trust in the trustworthy character of God. Think about that for a second. That's how much God cares about you. Individually speaking, He invites you to go, I'm going to invite you to trust in who I am. You don't have to. I'm certainly not going to force it, but it's available. Why won't He force us? Because that would be unnatural and unauthentic love and allegiance. And God is after pure love, a choice. God shows his love and desires and maintains those extended arms as we navigate our life. That means as you go about your day, as you receive this invitation, as you go into worship and you remember God's arms are open wide and you say, I got bigger things to do. I got more important things to do. I have more understanding of this world to do. I'll leave God aside. He stands there waiting with his arms open saying, whenever you're ready, I'm here. And here's the most amazing thing about God. He will never drop those arms. He has never dropped those arms. You think about your life, how much you've kept God out of it, how much you've relied on your own reasoning, he has stood there with his arms open. The times when you think you know better when, when you think you know the world better, even though God created it, his arms stay open. When you choose friends that aren't the right friends, he stands there and go, no problem, I'll wait. When, when you navigate uh, pain and sorrow and trauma all by yourself, not reaching out to God, he stands over you like this, inviting you To put your belief in the trustworthy character of God. It's been said a church without the authority of Scripture is like a crocodile without teeth. Kind of funny at first. It means it can open its mouth as wide and as often as it likes, but who cares? The church can, can speak in a culture and, and give an opinion and, and do great things, but without the teeth and the, and the authentic uh, scriptures, where's the bite? You go stand next to a crocodile. If you, and now, some of you go, teeth or no teeth, I'm not standing near a crocodile. Don't ruin the analogy. Think about it. No teeth, can't hurt you, can't swallow you. He can just gum you, which might freak you out even worse. I don't know if a crocodile can gum you. Mark has his PhD. He'll explain that here in just a second. Let's wrap this up. Here's, here's what inerrancy and infallibility does. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put this on the screen. If you want to take a picture, please do so, because this will help you in your own Faith, but also in discussions, It solidifies our confidence in the truth of the gospel. That's what it does. Inerrancy and infallibility governs our faith in the value of Jesus Christ. It makes it to where Jesus is so valuable because of what Scripture says he's done and who he is. It guides our response to the conclusions of science. Science is hard, man. They're, science is really good at what science does, but it, but it dictates or guides our response to science. It also dictates our attitude to the preaching of Scripture and invites our belief in the trustworthy character of God. These are gifts from God. They're not just facts They're not historical truths, they're not ancient practices of the truth, they're a gift. And friends, you have been given a gift, this incredible book. This book, I and many others of you in this room and for those of you who are watching online, you've staked your life on this book. You've staked your life on the promises of what this provides. This is a gift. It's a gift today, it's a gift tomorrow, and it will be a gift forever. Think about it this way. How many of you ever thought, I'm gonna get to heaven and I'm gonna hold my Bible? Did the Bible stay on earth or does the Bible go with you? Here's what I think. Now, I haven't been to heaven. I know you're shocked. Uh, I haven't been there yet. Here's how I think of it. I think the entire time of heaven, we're gonna be doing this. No way. No way. And our eyes are gonna be opened to even greater truths that this speak of. And we're gonna see it face to face. We're gonna touch it and interact with it. It's gonna be amazing. Why? Because this is the truth and the truth will set you free. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We cannot thank you enough for the scriptures. We cannot thank you enough that there are no errors. We cannot thank you enough that there's not even the capability of an error. Your words are pure. They are trustworthy. They are life-giving. They are useful for training and correcting and rebuking. They comfort the soul. They give understanding to life and death. They guide us in how to have relationships. They teach us dependence. And we could go on and on and on and on. They are these words, our bedrock of life. We stand upon them with confidence. We hold it high, and we know that whenever the scriptures are proclaimed, you are active. And even now, as we prepare for the time of worship in response to what we've heard, we know that the Word of God is active, that you are going to do something in these songs because we've spent time in the scriptures. So would you in your your great abilities move around this room, move in the homes of those who are watching online. Speak to us. Give us encouragement. Correct us. Love us. Give us peace and hope to each person, wherever they are in life. please be faithful to do what only you can do. And at every moment and every turn, we promise to give it our best effort to praise and acknowledge you as the God of all creation, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So we've gathered, we've prayed, we've read the Holy Scriptures, all under the authority and the observation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And for that we say, amen. Amen. Would you please stand and let's worship.